Pan Protest would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded on Wangal land. We acknowledge that we record our podcast on stolen land and the sovereignty was never ceded because of a number of issues that we talk about in this podcast. We acknowledge that decolonization should be central to the project of what we do as activists. Today we talk about a whole range of community issues with the lead candidate for Pride and Protest for the Mardi Gras board election of 2020, Alex Boucher. Welcome to Pride and Protest, the podcast. Welcome to the Pride and Protest podcast. Today we are speaking to our lead candidate for Mardi Gras board for the AGM, uh, which has just been announced um, for this year, 2020, is Alex Boucher. Alex, welcome. The first thing I want to ask you is, since the last Mardi Gras AGM, politically there are tectonic shifts that have happened um, broadly within our country around the world. And I think within the attitudes of the queer community, can you speak a little bit about how you perceive the political landscape to have changed? What are the most vital and important things that we should be focusing on politically? And how do you see Pride and Protest and Mardi Gras fit into that landscape. Thank you, Charlie. I would say that the biggest shift that we've seen in the landscape is probably to do with the police and uh, our community and also the BIPOC community's uh, relationship with the police. Last year, we introduced uh, a motion at the AGM asking for the police to no longer march, and it was roundly disputed, I guess, by the community. This year, I think we're seeing... Uh, a reevaluation of that relationship, and we're seeing we're seeing people more willing to sort of engage on those problems as they've become more visible, particularly to uh, white cis people within our community. Another thing which I think is probably understated is the way in which the pandemic has laid bare the economic ramifications of having such a heavily corporatized economy. If you look at companies like Qantas, uh, who we moved a motion against last year again. <laughs> and organizations like ANZ, Woolworths, Star Casino. There have been these stories coming out during the pandemic about them either rotting JobKeeper or completely underpaying their staff, which I guess most people would call wage theft. Those two things combined, I think, are probably the, the biggest shift we've actually seen. And they've both been... Uh, precipitated by different things. One is the Black Lives Matter movement over in the US, which has completely shifted the way a lot of people see the police. And the other is the pandemic. You know, both of those things are, I don't think they are things that have solely contributed, but they've definitely accelerated the timeline for a lot of people in understanding them as real problems. Yeah, let's let's zero in here on the police because we have seen we have we have seen blm as a as a as a as a catch cry um across the world specifically in australia to highlight deaths in custody uh in the treatment of indigenous people by the police and the prison system which obviously has been a fight that has been going on for a very long time and so therefore blm has just kind of 
brought that movement, you know, in the way that it has already existed into in, in into a new context, you know, when it's when it's put com- in comparison, you know, internationally, or having people realize or come into their consciousness uh, much more than it had been in the past. In terms of the police and political response to BLM, what has that looked like, and specifically, how does it look in terms of what the nature of protest is and what wins have we seen recently around the right to protest and how do you think we should capture this to be pushing forward things like BLM, other protests that are incredibly vital in this time? I think that's a good point about BLM becoming a catch cry. Uh, In Australia, you're right, it has become a catch cry for deaths in custody at both the hands of the police and corrective services. But it's also sparked a lot of debate around police brutality and violence in general. And secondarily to that, it it has really sparked a larger conversation about our right to protest in Australia. I think if you look at the the trans... uh, If you look at the Latham anti-trans bill protest that happened a few weeks ago, you see very clearly there that the police, in Australia at least, would prefer that there just were no protests if people just didn't have that right. And on Wednesday, we found out that suddenly everyone is allowed to protest up to 500 people without receiving a fine. I think a lot of that comes from this just continual push. Those changes seem to have been caused by a range of rallies that we've been seeing, the most visible of which would be uh, the, the university protests that we've been seeing right across New South Wales, and I think in other parts of the country as well. And then also the the trans rally that I referenced and the uh, BLM rally, which is happening on Monday or will have happened when this is released. If you think about the way in which the public conversation has shifted on those sorts of things, you see it is through the like hard work of activists at all levels. It isn't a electorally one right or anything along those lines. It is really people showing up and fighting. In regards to Mardi Gras, I think it shows that there is an appetite for this sort of activism. Mardi Gras seems to think that they are made up exclusively of cis, white, gays, and lesbians, and they seem to also forget that there are other people under the umbrella that they uh, proclaim to represent. And in doing that, they absolutely extinguish everyone else's right to activism by including people like the police, by including people like the Liberal Party in the parade. They seem to be saying like, oh, if you're anything outside of our like very limited mainstream, we don't really care what you have to say. I mean, realistically, Mardi Gras has no ability to engage in any of these fights because they are so beholden to sponsors who could quickly distance themselves if they see anything that could be even vaguely politically damaging to them. If you look at something like Black Lives Matter, you see a tale of two narratives online. And I I say that in the most like oversimplified way, because I think there are only two narratives. There are people who support 
and support unconditionally. And then there are people who say they've been burning cities for weeks. And I don't care if those people that say I've been burning, they've been burning cities for weeks started up with, I support their right to protest, but they belong in that second camp. They don't, they don't belong in the first camp. When you have such a highly politically charged movement like the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, you end up seeing companies just going, I don't know how to react. In uh, late June, early July, when, the, uh, when this round of the Black Lives Matter protests really kicked off, you saw a lot of corporations jumping on board. Uh, you, you saw corporations changing their, their web presences to you know, a black square and all those sorts of things. But as it went on and they started realizing that this issue was going to genuinely cost them customers, they backed off. I think it's also very important to note that Mardi Gras hasn't made a single statement in support of Black Lives Matter. They haven't made a single statement about uh, black deaths in custody. Mardi Gras has really been incredibly silent on this issue. And to, to, to my eyes, at least, it is all about the fact that they feel they will lose sponsors. I think it is also really important to note that they act as though there's never been a not-for-profit that doesn't take dirty money. It's difficult to really nail down on Mardi Gras as an agent of change because by their very structure and by the very way that they've set themselves up and by the status quo that they have so quickly settled into, they can't care about these issues because it directly conflicts with their financial concerns. What do you think the impact of Mardi Gras' relationship with the police and corrective services is on their ability to comment on BLM? I mean... I think that also has a huge part to play in their response or lack thereof. They largely have this this relationship with the police that is incredibly opaque to their members and the broader community. Pride in Protest has submitted a, a freedom of information request to uh, the New South Wales Police in order to actually access the memorandum of understanding between the police and Mardi Gras. Because we don't know what that relationship is. I can't see Mardi Gras ever elevating voices that really go against the status quo in any way. I can't see them having a you know friendship meeting with the police and the Indigenous community. I can't see them having a, a period of reconciliation between the police and the trans community. I mean, they barely had a period of reconciliation between the police and the gay community, who the police were complicit in the murder of during the 90s. I think if Mardi Gras was serious about wanting to support uh, Black Lives Matter or even enter into a period of reconciliation with the Indigenous community over the relationship with the police, then we wouldn't have had to submit that Freedom of Information Act request. We, Sorry, it's actually a GIPA request, which is just by the by, but whatever. Um, we, we wouldn't have had to actually submit that to find that out. They would have opened up their books. They would have shown us exactly what had been said between the company and the, the corporate protectors, which are the police. But instead, we're, we're left with this, with this sense of not knowing. As I said, Mardi Gras has not even come out in support of Black Lives Matter. They haven't come out with any statement on the deaths in custody. Getting, getting any sort of statement from Mardi Gras on a political issue is next to impossible. They don't have the bandwidth 
because of their corporate constraints, because of their relationship with the police, to actually go out there and actively represent their community on these issues. So in the past, regarding the police, Britain protests have focused very much on members' campaigns for getting the votes within Mardi Gras to have the police and corrective services not march, which um, have lost by a, 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 a small margin, but um, nevertheless have still lost. This year an open letter has been launched, signed not just by Pride and Protest, but by a number of important individuals within the community and people who have a role to play within Mardi Gras. What is the significance of this letter? You raise a really interesting point about the the motions that we usually put to the membership and the campaign that we usually organise around those motions. This letter has a huge amount of significance because it's not just members voting on a Saturday morning once a year. This letter has been created through grassroots support. It's been signed by what, over 400 people because of grassroots support. It's not something that we've had to campaign on as much as we would if it were an AGM and we were trying to get people to send us their proxies. The other part of significance of this letter is the number of people who are actively involved in making Mardi Gras the experience that it is every year, signing onto it and actually showing that hey, sure, look, I I work with you, but I'm not happy with this practice. This makes me incredibly uncomfortable. And for a lot of artists, it seems that there is a lot of conflict there between how do you supply your art while not really supporting certain aspects of an event. It's, It's very difficult for someone who spends their entire life honing a craft to then have to volunteer it to, or not volunteer, but, and then have to sell it to an organization that is basically just doing the complete opposite of what they believe. What this really shows is the power of workers, though, which is, I think, the most important thing. Because at, at, their, at the heart of what all of these artists, all of these speakers, at the heart of what them signing this letter is, is a group of workers who work for an event standing up and saying, no, we don't like this. And it exists in the long and proud history of unions that do the exact same thing. In a way, this letter is acting as a a quasi-union movement. A lot of these artists have reached out to one another in order to get them to sign. Obviously, I support uh, the unionization of all workforces. That's, That's not up for debate at all. But this sort of action, it's almost like a rank-and-file action within a a branch, within a union, in order to uh, create a political response. And obviously it's the job of the the union rank-and-file to ensure that the bureaucracy of the union actively represents their values. I think the historical precedent is is a really, really key point to this. You know, we saw anti-racism be part of the union movement for decades um, in their anti-apartheid action. 
um, notably with um, with the boycott of the Springboks tour in 1971. And I think a more recent example as well, you know, standing as workers standing up to racism, what happened within the Biennale when they were sponsored by Transfield, who basically facilitated offshore detention camps. It's these, it's these spaces where, you know, we basically celebrate our culture, you know, with the Springboks and the, the BLM actions in America in sport. When you take these things in concert, when you take, you know, what happens in the realm of sport in terms of um, boycott of the Springbok tour and the actions that have happened in uh, different different sports in America around BLM, um, and you take, you know, the way that uh, artists as workers um, stood up during the Biennale, um, when Biennale had partnered with Transfield, who had um, facilitated um, offshore detention camps, you start to get a picture of the way that workers exercise their power when it comes to standing up against racism in any form of way that we, we celebrate our culture. Yeah, you, you see all of these movements relying on those cultural touchstone moments they they can't they can't exist within a political vacuum when you take the booing incident of adam goods and you see how that sort of reverberated through australia with the conversation around racism that it sparked and then you see that the afl issued him a formal apology after two documentary films were made, it shows that all of these all of these things are inherently cultural. It wasn't it wasn't because some politician signed something that we ended up having all of these protests. It wasn't because some politician signed something that the Biennale ended up dropping Transfield as a sponsor. All of these things are done from the ground up. They, they don't exist in a vacuum and they definitely don't exist in a political vacuum. I think one of the things that a lot of leftists, well, I mean, leftists in Australia at least can get a bit caught up in is the idea of electoralism. And I'm sure that's something we want to talk about on a different podcast. But, <laughs> but realistically, all these things require these uh, cultural behemoths in order for them to to even spark that thought in a lot of Australians' minds. So who are the artists that have signed this, signed this letter? We've had a really good response to the letter. The artists that have signed on have come from a, a really broad range of different uh, professions within the, the art community. I would say most significantly are the sissy ball artists. I'm seeing four of the biggest houses in Australia signing on to the letter very quickly, including house mother of Slay, uh, Benji Ra, who's the curator of sissy ball, and uh, other house mothers like Kiki Divine uh, from the House of Divine and uh, Carly Misapika from the House of Luna. Seeing those sorts of people sign on is really powerful because the event, Sissy Ball, really created a cultural moment in Australia and it's become one of the most popular events at Mardi Gras each year. And then we see comedians like Tom Ballard, 
Cassie Workman, Demi Lardner, all signing on to the exact same letter. It's really quite powerful. We've we've seen musicians as well, like Montaigne and uh, Brendan McLean, and then seeing elders as well, like uh, Rhonda Dixon Grosvenor and Esther Montgomery, all uh, both signing on. I think it shows the the intersectionality of this issue and the way it really does affect people from all walks of life. So turning now to more inside the organisation of Mardi Gras itself, how do you see the corporatization of Mardi Gras affect the way that it functions as an organisation? Purely from the perspective of them having to act as almost a, a representative of those corporations because of that money. Mardi Gras has become decreasingly democratic over the over the last few years. I look at their their recent call out to members for consultation as a great example of this, where where they asked members what they thought of some proposed amendments to their constitution. And a lot of them were were really strange, the sort of thing you wouldn't see in many organisations, you know, like a six-month waiting period for members to be able to vote after they sign up, a cap of people holding five proxies. We saw a move to appoint three people to the board based upon basically skills rather than being elected. And, and when I say skills, I mean uh, like the very, very tight definition of the the corporate matrix as to who would fit into those positions. We're not going to see activists. We're not going to see artists. We're not going to see anyone who would actually bring something new to the board. We're going to see more corporate representation. And those those sorts of motions taken alone aren't the end of the world, but it really is this this idea of they do not want us to be able to have any say in how an organization that is supposed to represent us actually operates. I think if you also look at some of our motions from last year, and specifically the motion to do with uh, the ethics charter, in in the text of the motion, it, it talks about community consultation. And they didn't consult the community. Instead, during a second round of consultations, which had nothing to do with the uh, proposed amendments to the constitution, we find out, no, they haven't been consulting with the community. They've been consulting with their key sponsors, which really shows us who Mardi Gras thinks their, their community is. It's, it is this slow slide into how can we ignore our members whilst maximizing the value for our sponsors. And in them doing that, they've, they've shown that they just do not care about any of the community outside of those white cis gays and lesbians. And then you look at an event that's going to be coming up in 2023, World Pride. And you, you start to see this these insidious anti-democratic principles take root in a whole new organization. World Pride doesn't have an option for joining up to become a member. There's, there's no way that a Mardi Gras member can have a say as to what happens with World Pride unless they somehow miraculously become a board member of World Pride. The only way that a member of community can have their say as to what happens with World Pride is by garnering a mass movement. There, there's no way for us to launch a motion at the World Pride AGM. There's no way for us to be elected onto the board of World Pride. All of this has 
led me to believe that it's incredibly corporatized. And when you consider that the issues around World Pride, about them being anti-democratic, about them not representing a community, and you take it one step further, and it's not just corporatism, it's crony corporatism, you see that the, the CEO of World Pride was appointed to that position. There was never an open tender for that position. And the person who holds that position is a current board director and the former chair of the Mardi Gras board. That doesn't speak to me as a democratic organization. And it certainly doesn't speak to me as a straight down the line, uncorrupt organization. And I mentioned World Pride because it seems to be the structure and the model that a lot of the more corporate members of the board would prefer Mardi Gras take. Get rid of the, the pesky members, get rid of the, the democracy, and move straight to this quote-unquote meritocracy. So we know that Mardi Gras is simply one element of what Pride and Protest engage in, in terms of the broader political landscape, what would you say to people that, one, want to get involved in the level of engaging with Mardi Gras and making sure that it represents the community? But what would you also say that we need to do broadly as a community? What are the kind of fights that we engage in and how do we do it? One of the biggest ways that people get involved with Pride in Protest is through the annual campaigns that we run for memberships and and the the board campaigns the motion campaigns another big way is during the year we organize contingents to protests sometimes we will have someone from pride and protest be one of the co-chairs of those uh, protests we're involved in letter writing campaigns but we also get involved in so many different areas whether it be fighting for the climate whether it be uh, fighting against transphobic bills, whether it be uh, Black Lives Matter, which, is, uh, which has been a big one for us this year. If there is a protest, there's most likely going to be a Pride in Protest contingent. I think the, the importance of the activist work that is done through Pride in Protest comes from the fact that it is directly speaking to members of the LGBTQIA plus community. And I think the accessibility of us being involved in so many grassroots movements is really uh, a credit to the community because the movements that we're involved with, our contingents would be nothing if it weren't for all the members that come along and all the members who actually show up and, and fight against the injustices that they see. I think that's the beauty of what Pride and Protest does is that because it is involved with those movements, what we do and I guess the way that we're set apart from other queer organizations that exist and and you know we exist within a in a network of them and there's many that we do that we do work with and, and engage with but the thing about pride and protest is that we don't have an appeal to the organs of state or we don't have an appeal to uh corporations to kind of rely on them for some sort of change to happen can you comment on the importance of as grassroots individuals and you know how it links into everything we've been talking about in this conversation you know around community power around a working power why is it important for people to not defer to these larger institutions but rather make demands on them as i've said a couple of times none of these 
successes that we see anywhere in the world happen in a vacuum. They all rely on individuals getting involved. They all rely on uh, cultural movements. We're not beholden to any form of political power. We're not associated with any political party. We're not associated with any corporation. We're not associated with any government organization. Really, we sort of have that that freedom to be able to express what we truly believe because we're not beholden to any power other than ourselves. And we we realize our own power because of that. We we know that we have all these opportunities to say something, to stand up, to fight. And it all comes out of the fact that we we don't have anyone looking over our shoulder, breathing down our necks. We we have that power because we are completely independent. And we have power as the community and we have power as workers. Because we make up the mass. We are the 99%. <laughs> Occupy my <laughs> But we do. And because we are the community and we are the community at home, we are the workers, we will always have that power because we have the numbers. Alex, thank you so much for this conversation. We've talked about so much. I'm just so excited to see you be the lead candidate and to be a representative of the community and to fight for all these things that we're talking about, to fight for direct democracy, to fight for direct action and to fight for proper change. Thank you, Charlie. If you would like to keep up with everything that Pride and Protest does, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Pride and Protest or on Instagram. Our handle is at pride.in.protest and we'll see you for the next episode of the pod.